This book is dense. This book is doctrinal. And it's, it's pretty heavy sledding, so, so get ready as we jump into this thing. It's going to be intense. And I'm going to try and thread the needle here for Neil because I'm following him out of chapter 2, and then he's going to follow me next week. And so I'm going to try to thread the theological needle for him and tie together uh, the material that he's working through. But I want you to see that Paul is very intentional here in Ephesians about the implications, the outworking, and the application of his teaching here in Ephesians. He's not all about doctrine for doctrine's sake, but he wants to see his readers' lives absolutely transformed by the gospel. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 3, when we step into that text, it says, for this reason. And you'll notice that refrain stepping through the book of Ephesians. If you go back to Ephesians 1.15, Paul says, for this reason, after unpacking all of the massive theological truths that Rod unpacked for us back in chapter 1. Paul says, for this reason, I pray for you. And then again here in chapter 3, for this reason, he's going to step into his burden to preach to the Gentiles. And then again in 314 next week, for this reason, Paul is going to want to pray for the people. So let's jump into this implication that Paul wants to draw from his teaching here in chapter 1 and 2. And if you'd stand with me, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read 1 through 13, and then I'm going to pray really quick that God would just really show up this morning in just a powerful way to our hearts, and uh, we'll get underway. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. I want to pray here before we jump into this passage. Father, I need your help if the genius of the gospel is going to be seen and savored by us for our everlasting satisfaction. So would you come in the power of your Holy Spirit and make these truths real and relevant to our hearts? Would you get me out of the way so that your word, God, could land on your people with all the force of your conviction. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So Paul, here in Ephesians chapter 3, is unpacking some implications of all of his weighty teaching in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's been heavy sledding with Neil and Rod and Matthew unfolding doctrine after doctrine, truth after truth. And Paul is here in chapter 3 going, for this reason, let let me give you this implication of the gospel. Because of all the mind-blowing truth coming out of my mouth here, let, let me show you where this is taking me, where this is leading me. And what Paul is doing here is we're going to see that the implication of all that Paul has learned, all that Paul has written, is that he's been called to go out and preach the gospel and to reveal the mystery, to make it plain to the Gentiles. And so as we step into verse 1 of chapter 3, we see that Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. You wonder, why is Paul adding that little biographical note to give us that little information. It's interesting. Paul doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Emperor Nero in Rome. You notice what he says? I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am here for the sake of the gospel. And so if you are wondering about my credibility, if you are wondering about my authenticity, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? Paul is giving the Ephesians his heart for them. I love you so much that I am in prison so that you could receive the gospel. And that's just a glimpse into Paul's pastoral heart. And then Paul reminds the Ephesians of his calling to the Gentiles in verse 2. If you notice, he says, "Um, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, for you. And this is a chain letter, if you remember, to all the churches in Asia Minor. The Ephesian church was very aware of God's calling to the Gentiles. He had spent years there pouring into this church, but he's sending this letter out to all the churches in Asia Minor, and he needs to remind them of his calling. And it's interesting, the word here in the NIV is administration. Right? You've heard of the administration of God's grace. If you have the ESV in front of you, it's the stewardship of God's grace. And that word administration means that Paul has been given a divine calling and a divine commission. And that commission is that he's entrusted to make plain the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul has written to them about his burden for them. He's explained their calling to them. And then he goes on to explain how he received this mystery of the gospel that he's preaching to the Gentiles here in verse 3. That is the mystery made known to be my revelation as I have already written to you briefly. And so this is not something that Paul dreamed up. This is not something Paul was reading a bunch of rabbis and go, oh, I'm starting to see dots connecting together. This is God supernaturally revealing his plan of redemption to Paul. Right, see Paul, and he says here that Paul, he has already written to them briefly about this mystery. And there's some speculation about where he's written about this. Was this another epistle? Most of the commentators think no. Paul is referring back to chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul talks about the mystery of God's will that Rod talked about back in that sermon. Paul has already written briefly about the mystery, and he's going to unpack it more and more for us. So the Holy Spirit then, as we're going to see in verse 4, is the source of Paul's insight. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This is, this is the Holy Spirit thing. This is not just Paul the theologian coming up with some constructions. This is the Holy Spirit working in 
Paul to reveal these truths, and not only to Paul alone, but also to all the other apostles. And that's what we have in verse 5, which was not made known to men in other generations, and has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So, so we've got this mystery, we've got, got its calling, we've got its revelation through Paul, and then Paul got, goes on to explain what is then the content of the mystery. Keep hanging with me here. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is explaining then the content of the mystery, that through the gospel, God is uniting Jews and Gentiles into one body. And that's, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty mind-blowing. I'm not going to belabor that point because two weeks ago, that's what Neil spent his sermon unpacking in chapter 2, the implications of the gospel as they break down every wall of division, ethnically, racially, generationally, culturally. The gospel is just blowing through all of those walls, uniting people from all kinds of different places in life, all together into one body, and it's all accomplished through the gospel. But I want you to see that even more expansively than God just uniting people across um, racial and ethnic lines, more expansively, God is uniting all things, things in heaven and on earth, through Jesus Christ. That's what we read back in chapter 1, verse 9, when Paul is unpacking the mystery in chapter 1. Let me remind you of it fairly quickly here in verse 9 of chapter 1. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to... To his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, he put it to be put into effect when the times will reach their fulfillment, to bring all things, things in heaven and things on earth, together one, under one head, even Christ. And so the mystery is that God is uniting Jews and Gentiles, that God is uniting all things, things in heaven and on earth, under one head, even Jesus Christ. So we've got the mystery, and then we're going to hear a little bit more about Paul's commission. Here's the mystery he's been entrusted with by revelation for the Gentiles. And we read ahead then in verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the, uh, less than the least of all God's people. You see, Paul was called to be a servant of this gospel. You see, Paul can't take any credit for the gospel. He has no authority over it, and he has to be obedient to it. He cannot innovate on this gospel. He is a servant of the gospel. It is a total gift of God's grace to him. It's a total work of God's power at work in his life, and it's totally based on God's revelation which is interesting because of the stark contrast right, between Paul's unworthiness. See, Paul has some pretty interesting names for himself throughout the Bible. He calls himself the chief of sinners or the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. In 1 Corinthians, he calls himself the least of the apostles. In this passage, he makes up an even more interesting one. He coins a whole new expression in the Greek. It's this whole diminutive. He's less than the least of all God's people, less than the least. And yet God's grace and God's power landed on him because of that. And Paul's not just being modest, just so you know. I mean, the great apostle Paul, who's like, you know, missionary to the whole world, apostle, absolutely amazing resume. 
We have to remember that the Apostle Paul was also a blasphemer, a persecutor. What he says of himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, he was an insolent opponent of the gospel. This man was public enemy number one to Christianity. And yet God wanted to display his grace and his power at work in this man to take the gospel out to the entire world. And his calling specifically for us here in verse 8 is he's called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Talk about a job description. Paul, I want you to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And that's verse 8. Although I'm the least of all these people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of of Christ. And that word preach is actually the word gospel. Paul got to gospel the Gentiles, to preach the good news of the unfathomable wealth of Christ. And the person and the work of Christ, you may know if you're at all a bibliophile, that there are countless volumes in countless libraries throughout the world of volumes on all that Christ has done in his life, death, resurrection, ascension. And yet, Paul is saying that you have not even begun to scratch the surface of digging into all the wealth, all the riches, all the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And he has got this commission, this mandate to preach all the riches of Christ, which is pretty amazing. And it's even more startling when we come to verse 9 and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. So you've got the job to take the unsearchable, unfathomable riches of Christ and make them plain to everybody. How'd you like that task? How'd you like that commission? This is not happening apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in this man's life, taking unfathomable riches of Christ, communicating them, making them plain to the Gentiles. This is a mystery we learn in verse 9, right, that it's been hidden in the Creator, but now he wants to reveal his plans for redemption through Paul. And Paul's burden is that everyone gets this, that everyone understands the mystery. There are no elites here. There's no special initiates. There's no inner circle. There's no secret knowledge. The gospel is an open secret. It is plain, and he wants it to be revealed to every person under heaven. There's nobody outside the range of which he does not want this gospel to become absolutely plain and unmistakable. And so Paul has been laboring for this. He's been giving his life for this. He's in prison for this. He is giving his life, just pouring it out for this ministry and this message And we've got to ask ourselves, why is Paul so passionate about this gospel? He's got this commission. He is on fire for it. He is preaching it. He's making it plain. He's writing about it. He's preaching all over the world. We've got his letters. Why is Paul so passionate about preaching the gospel and making it plain? And I want to slow down a little bit as we get into the implications here of why Paul is so burdened. I want this to just land on us with all the power that God would have for us. See, God's purpose here is threefold. And there's, Ephesians is dense. I'm sorry. There's just a ton of material in this thing. So hang with me. Three purposes that he wants to just land on these guys. First of all, God's purpose is that the genius of the gospel would be made known through the church. That's you guys. The genius of the gospel made known 
to the church, that the church would have freedom and confidence to approach God, and that the church would glory in the gospel. So let's start here at the genius of the gospel. This is really amazing here in verse 10. It just blew me away as I was, I was reading about it this week. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Do you get that? His intent is that through the church, not through Paul, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities. You know, what on earth does that mean? That is pretty dense material. And so I've got to unpack this in doing so. And this is the thing with Paul. You've got to work on words. I mean, you can't just take the main thought here. I mean, you've got to go word by word by word because this stuff is dense. And so let me start with the word now. How about that? We'll start with now. His intent was that now. You know, what's the now of this passage here? What is Paul talking about? There's been something definitive that has happened in human history that Paul wants his readers to know about. That now something has changed and that something is Jesus. This is the difference between A.D. and B.C. Because Jesus has come, everything is different. Everything is new. For Paul, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is the center point of human history. In Christ, we have entered a whole new age. Jesus has defeated Satan and established his kingdom. And get this, Jesus is making his invisible kingdom visible now through the church. That's pretty intense, right? Jesus is making his invisible kingdom visible through the church. I stole that line from Steve Childers, who's a great missiologist and church planner. God making his invisible kingdom, making his invisible kingdom visible through the church. And the goal being that the manifold wisdom of God would be known. So, so Paul, get this here. Paul is committed to so preach and so make plain the gospel that the church of all ages can steward it. You see, Paul knows his life is going to end. He can't be the sole entruster of the gospel. His life is limited. His resources are limited. He could only get around the Mediterranean. That was the extent of his geographical influence. And so he realizes that he has got to pass this gospel on. And he doesn't just pass it on to one person. He goes, I got to pass this on to the church. This is Paul's apostolic burden along with the other apostles to entrust the gospel to the church. See, the gospel forms the church. If you were looking back in verse 6, right, through the gospel, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. In other words, through the gospel, we get put together into the church, Jews, Gentiles, doesn't matter who we are, where we're from, what our family is, we're all brought together through Christ so the gospel forms the church, and then the church is entrusted with the gospel. And as the church understands and embodies the gospel, as we get it, not just in our minds, but as we embody it in our lives, as it begins to shape all that we are, it begins to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't that mind-blowing? You're like, what is the manifold wisdom of God? That word manifold is a word for many-sided, variegated. Um, commentators have said many-splendored, richly diversified. You get the picture. This is a lot of wisdom going on here. The manifold wisdom of God. And uh, in ancient times, uh, Peter O'Brien tells us that this is poetic in origin, referring to intricately embroidered pattern of a many-colored cloak, 
like Joseph's cloak back in Genesis, or of a garland of flowers. So this spectacular, beautiful, multicolored, multidimensional pattern, all illustrating the design of one brilliant artist. And that's what the church is all about. That's what the church is supposed to be. As the church embraces the countless implications of the gospel, we will display the gospel out in countless ways. And we've seen that already, haven't we? In, in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, how we have redemption in Christ, how we're adopted as his sons, how we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, how all of a sudden the gospel's breaking through all those ethnic and racial barriers and the wall is being smashed down and there's this international people of God being joined together in Jesus and the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed more and more and more in the church. I love what F.F. F. Bruce says. He tries to, I don't know if this is going to be more concrete for you or less concrete, but he says that the church is God's pilot program for the reconciled universe of the future. How intense is that? The church is God's pilot program for the reconciled universe of the future. If you want to see what the universe is going to look like once God puts it all back together, you get a sneak peek in the church. The church is revealing the manifold wisdom of God. Um, Harvey Kahn uh, says it this way. He says the church is like a model home. That's, you know, it's set up out there, this beautiful, gorgeous house that everyone in the world is invited to come on into this model home, see what it's going to look like when God establishes his domain, when he brings down the new Jerusalem from heaven, when God sets up his new heavens and new earth. You want to see what it's going to look like? Come on into the model home. You know what the model home is? It's the church. As people walk into our bodies, as people walk into our homes, as people see our lives, they are starting to get a peek of what God is doing in history, culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. God is displaying his manifold wisdom, what I want to call the genius of the gospel, right, in the church. Isn't that amazing? The genius of the gospel through the church. And do you know who's, who he's displaying it to? Because this is where it gets even crazier. He's displaying it to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And you're on who on earth are the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms? This is really getting it confusing. Well, the heavenly realms, Paul's already mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 3, is the domain where God is at, right? Where you have God and Satan, angels, demons. This is where all the saints that have died are already at. They're at God's hand. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And so in the heavenly realms, we have all that's going on in the supernatural realm. And these rulers and authorities, interestingly, in Paul's letters, primarily refer to the enemies of God. So if you look in Ephesians chapter 6 and you know about the spiritual warfare passage, you guys could probably quote it to me, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities. Isn't that interesting? Same word for rulers and authorities here. Paul is saying his master plan of redemption, his manifold wisdom revealed in the gospel is being made known to the rulers and authorities, these enemies of God, Satan, his demons, God's plan is being displayed through the church to the rulers and authorities. But the rulers and authorities isn't just demons. We know from 1 Peter 1.12 that angels also long to look in to the truths of the gospel. They want to see these amazing truths. So it's probably best to say with uh, the commentator Peter O'Brien that, that what Paul has in mind is the whole host of heavenly beings. Paul is trying to say that through the church, 
the genius of the gospel, the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to all the rulers, all the authorities in the heavenly places, which is pretty crazy. And, and I want to quote Peter O'Brien on this. He's, he's got a great quote. Although Paul does not make explicit the nature of the testimony given to the rulers, it has to be inferred that the church provides the angelic powers with a tangible reminder that their authority has been decisively broken and that all things are subject to Christ. The powers cannot hinder the advance of the gospel to the Gentiles or their incorporation along with the Jews in the body of Christ. Do you get that? The church is displaying God's victory to the enemies all the way out to the heavenly places. Your power has been broken and the church is going to be a reminder to you every day that you have been foiled at the cross. What you thought was your victory was actually God's decisive victory over all things. And then God is putting everything back together. And that's that Ephesians 1, 9 through, 12, 9 through 11. You see, the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And do you get that gates are defensive imagery? So many times we think, boy, we got to circle the wagons here in the church, build up some walls to protect us from hell. It's going to be after us. No, Jesus is saying the gates of hell are not going to withstand the advance of Christ's church. You see, the church is entrusted, I love this, with just storming the gates of hell. That's our mandate. And it's not the parachurch. It's not Billy Graham. It's not Bill Bright. The church has been entrusted with this gospel to take it out. And as we do that, we are a continual reminder to everyone, to the world, and ultimately all the way out to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that God has won. The genius of the gospel has outsmarted Satan, his demons, and any henchmen that might be involved with that. And the church is the continual reminder of God's manifold wisdom to them. Whew. That's, a, that's heavy. And that's just point one. And actually, I got to go down to 11 too, by the way. Um, 11, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, this wasn't a surprise. This wasn't an innovation. This was according to God's eternal plan. God always wanted to display his wisdom through the gospel and then ultimately through a gospel people that would be formed out of that. And that's the church. And so we have to ask ourselves, just as a church here in the West, is that who we are? Are we a church that is just displaying the manifold wisdom of God for a watching world, for the powers and the authorities? Are we a church where the gospel is breaking through all those barriers racially, ethnically, generationally, culturally? Is the gospel demolishing all of the things that separate us as human beings and uniting a people? It's tough to see that here in the U.S. We see that much more as you travel abroad and you see this international tapestry that God is forming of people from all nations and all peoples and all tribes and all tongues that are ultimately going to be gathered around the throne. But, but is that a reality for us here in Grand Rapids? Is the gospel breaking across those lines in our lives? We, we've got to ask ourselves that question. Is this true of us? Is this true in our lives? So that's Paul's first motivation. Let, let me go on to his second one. And, and believe it or not, it's no less precious than the first. Where Paul is going to go here in verse 12. I love this. In him, 
And through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that amazing? In Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. And uh, the reason that's so surprising is because if you remember anything about Genesis chapter 1, the last time human beings had freedom and confidence to approach God was in the Garden of Eden where they were walking with him in the cool of the day. And then Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were kicked out of God's presence forever because they rebelled against God because they wanted to set themselves up as God. And so humanity ever since has been separated from God, alienated from God. And only through Jesus Christ, who came and died the death we should have died, took the punishment we deserved on the cross so that we could be united with him and brought back into his presence. And I want to tell you, the door hasn't been opened like a little bit of crack so we can kind of sneak in there with all of our past, with all of our baggage, with all of our issues. Man, the door has been swung wide open in Jesus Christ. The debt has been completely paid. Whatever you've done, whatever your past, Jesus has paid it all and we get it all. That's the gospel. And so we get to enter with freedom and confidence and boldness. We get access to the true and living God. We get brought back into the one relationship that we were made for, that we were designed for from all, from the very beginning of the world. It is just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture And Paul, as intellectual, as cerebral, as deep as he was, man, he got this truth in his heart. He got this freedom of approach with God, and it liberated him to go out and share this gospel to people all over the world and begin a movement that would dominate the world. I mean, 2,000 years and billions of Christians later, unbelievable what getting a hold of freedom And the confidence that we have in Christ will do to your life once you understand that, once you grasp that, once you walk into that. Not just as a concept, but deep within your heart, that becomes a reality. And so again, um, ask yourself, are you living out of the freedom and the confidence of the gospel? Or are you more weighed down by religion? by fear and guilt, the need to pretend that you're a good person, but the need to perform and keep up with all these rules and regulations. The genius of the gospel is that you've been accepted. You don't have to perform. You don't have to pretend. Jesus did it all. Maybe you're on the irreligion track today. God just feels super distant from you. He's not real. He's not relevant. He's not a part of your life. I want to tell you the genius of the gospel is that God is not far from each one of us. That's what Paul says in Acts 17 to a bunch of pagan Athenian philosophers. He says, you know what? God is not far. And we know that because Jesus has come near. He's become flesh and blood, died on the cross, came into our lives, into our world, suffered all the things that we suffered, rose from the grave and sent his Holy Spirit. So God would not just be out there, but inside of us through the Holy Spirit. We have that kind of assurance, that kind of confidence, that kind of freedom that not only do we have to approach God, God has approached us. God is living in us through the Holy Spirit. We have direct access. And even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit's interceding before the Father with groans that that we can't even express. Finally, Paul wants the Ephesians to see the glory of the gospel. This verse 13 isn't a throwaway verse here. It says, I ask you, therefore, in other words, this is important, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your 
glory. And you go, how on earth could Paul's imprisonment be their glory? How does his suffering equate to their glory? And it's pretty simple if you think about it. Because of his suffering, they have received the gospel. They have received all of these precious truths that we have been just laboring in this series on Ephesians to unpack. And it is their treasure. It is their glory. And the glory of the gospel for Paul makes any sacrifice, any amount of suffering worthwhile to get this gospel out. The gospel is their glory. And so as we're finishing up, how can we become a church collectively and individually that is making known the genius of the gospel, experiencing the freedom and confidence to approach God, and a church that is glorying in in this gospel? Let me give you three suggestions in conclusion that you can take with you to dig this gospel deeper into your own heart. And here's the first one. Make the gospel your life study. Make the gospel your life study. Paul's passion was to know the gospel so intimately that he could make it plain to everyone. That was his burden. You need to develop a passion to make the gospel plain to your soul. And I'm not talking about memorizing John 3.16. Okay, check, got the gospel, we're done, moving on to other things. I'm talking about grasping all that God is for you in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. How about that? That's pretty expansive. Try to grasping all that God is for you in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We're talking the character and promises of God, the person and work of Christ, the work, person and work of the Holy Spirit. You need to make the gospel your life study. But it's not enough that you know this gospel. It's not enough that Rod preaches it every week, that Neil preaches it every week. It's not enough that I get up here and preach it. This gospel has got to land on your own heart. You see, the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel has been made known to Satan. It's been made known to the demons and it hasn't done them any good. And we live in an area that's churched. It's got lots of Gospel spread everywhere, and it doesn't do anything if it doesn't get into our hearts. And so the second suggestion I have for you, and that is to preach the gospel to yourself daily. I've never heard a better exposition of this than uh, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones has as he's working through Psalm 42. I challenge you, if you're struggling right now, read through Psalm 42 and work this out for yourself. This is what Lloyd-Jones says. Very insightful, very pastoral. Do you realize that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? <laughs> What's the matter with that? The main art, he says, in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you downcast? What business have you to be, disqui- be disquieted? You must exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope in God. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Preach those truths to yourself every day. As you're in the word, don't just read it. Preach it to yourself. Pray it to yourself. And finally, embrace the gospel with all your heart through faith in Christ. And this is what Paul goes on to do as he prays 
in Ephesians 14 through 21. His prayer isn't any of those other things in chapter 1 and 2. He's like, I just want this reality, the love of God, to just land on you with all the force it could possibly land. To the extent that we as a church radically embrace the gospel, we will display the manifold wisdom of God, experience freedom and confidence to enter God's presence, and we will glory in the gospel. Let me pray for you guys in conclusion that God would do this very thing in your lives and that we might indeed be this display to the world. Father, we long to be a church that displays the manifold wisdom of God that is so free and confident in our approach to you. We want to be a church that glories in the gospel, God, but we are so weak Help us to make the gospel plain to our hearts. Help us to preach it to our hearts. Help us to fight for our joy in you. We pray all of this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up, would you want? We're going to just respond with one song. Oh, oh, oh.